Welcome back to There Will Be Movies. This is our podcast where we cover 25 of our favourite movies from any given decade, or I should say my favourite movies from any given decade. <laughs> uh, we are in the midst of our third volume where we're covering movies from 1990 to 1999. This is our 75th and final episode in which we are covering Claire Denis' 1999 movie, although technically it came out in 2000 and almost the entirety of the world, Otrevi. Matt? How are you doing this this Sunday morning in which the world might be eventually going back into a COVID lockdown? Well, yeah, that that's not good and has contributed to my hair being atrocious. I made the poor decision to shave the other day um, and I haven't been clean shaven in, like I think, literally like two and a half years, something like that. And every time I've ever shaved, I think I've immediately regretted it. I'm like, why did you do this? But you pass a point of no return where you've shaved a little bit too much. It's like, well, I've got to even it out. And now it looks weird. Now I've got a Tony Stark goatee. I can't do that. And then you get rid of that. And it's like, oh God, who is this person? Yeah, but so, that's the benefit of not going out anymore is that you can have a Tony Stark goatee and no one realises. Well, yeah. Yeah. So like I did that and it, look, it makes my hair look even more strange because I'm already dealing with who's this person I'm looking at in the mirror so I think I'm going to shave my head but it's really cold so like <laughs> I don't know there's a lot going on with my sartorial on. decisions is there a hat game going on you, got lots oh, of I, you know I've got hats but you know I, I've sort of played it wrong where I rocked this insane heat wave with big hair and a giant beard and I'm now going to be <laughs> clean shaven with a shaved head in the winter so you know I've made some choices they were clearly the wrong ones let, let's move forward and, and, and talk about gayness. Um, yeah, I mean, it sounds like you're ready to join the French Legionnaires. It does, doesn't it? <laughs> that, is, that is a lot of, of shaven-headed, beautiful naked Frenchmen. Oh, uh, God, so many beautiful naked Frenchmen. It's, yes. <laughs> okay, so right off the top, it is wild that this movie can make the four-foot-three goblin man at the centre of this movie, Danny Levant, into an attractive person. <laughs> uh yeah, I suppose there is that, you know, intensity to him that, that can be attractive. I couldn't really escape the fact he's a he's a psychopathic monster, but you know, that's that's life, isn't it? Yeah. So so obviously so this is very firmly a knee pick. Um when I'm at the moment editing our Office Space episode in which you're sat there going like, I can't believe I managed to get Office Space on the list and that entire episode I was thinking like I don't think Matt's seen Botra. Yeah, but like... Otherwise, otherwise there would be more pushback putting this movie that has almost no dialogue and almost no plot onto this list. Yeah, but let's, let's, let's be real, though. Like, you are in charge of making this podcast cultured and respectable, and I drag <laughs> it down into let's do dumb shit with poorly aging humour um, and, and just all of that stuff, and let's do the Boston boys in their little movie where they make one of them the smartest guy in the world. Coming off the other two volumes, where there have been some sort of contentious picks, I was very pleased with how much I'd gotten onto this list, and I was like, I don't give a shit what happens in the final two episodes, you can have whatever you want, because I've gotten all of my darlings on there, <laughs> so I, I'm cool with it. And I don't I don't hate Bodrava, it's obviously not my thing as much as it is yours, but... You know, I'm not like, ugh, this isn't a um, Florida project by any means. You know the difference? Well, There's it. no fucking annoying yeah. kids in there. <laughs> no, that's the thing. This movie is very much like a no plot, all vibes. And yeah. I think that's what's so, what's so fascinating is this. Why I put this movie on a Friday night and my partner was out. And the original plan was we were going to follow up Boat Revive with Chicken Little as part of our, like, we're watching every single Disney movie in a row. And <laughs> because she was out, I was like okay, I've got some time to kill until she gets in. I'm going to watch every single special feature on this on this movie. Mm-hmm. And so like, I watched so many like deeply fascinating conversations about like this movie in the wake afterwards. I'm like, oh God, there's so much, there's so much subtext here in this movie that really is for like 70 minutes of it, just men in Africa hugging each other whilst wearing very few clothes. <laughs> um, yeah, I like that the drills, you know, there's always a an element of homoeroticism to any kind of, you know, intense male physicality. And then it literally just becomes, right, you're just going to grab and release each other over and over and over again. It's like, so, so just hug, just shirtless hugging for a bit. You got it. But I mean, I think the most interesting thing was like, I didn't actually realise that the criterion set for this movie came out in the middle of the lockdown. Mm. And so the centrepiece of like all the, the special features on this, on this box set is a combination with Fleddeny and Barry Jenkins. And it's like literally recorded the day after Ferguson. Oh, okay. um, 
And so you have Barry Jenkins kind of going like, it is wild to watch a movie about the structures of military and like tangential policing and all those, like those kind of like world structures that exist Mm. and have obviously so, so much center on the people and the kind of the, the tension that exists there in terms of like existing in this world that like maybe you're doing things that you don't want to do, or maybe Mm. like people in charge who are like forcing you to do things you don't want to do. And like, obviously like this movie is not explicitly like a, a treatise on, on racial violence in America, but like Mm. it's interesting that, it is so much about foreignness and and structures. But that is such a like small subtextual part of it. Where like you know you get you get. I think the most explicit it is when Gallo tells one of them, "You're not African anymore. You're French," and he and he has to sort of stand back and like you know. Obviously, it's inescapable that that they are uh, you know the French Foreign Legion in Djibouti and like they are sort of visiting markets and going clubbing and stuff and they do stick out and 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 there's there's all of that but it it does not really dwell at all on the part that you would expect from it is fitting that we did um hurt locker at the end of volume 1 yeah mm-hmm. where that does sort of more directly address we shouldn't be here kind of thing <laughs> whereas here it's like Maybe you can see it on some people's faces, but there is no attempt to kind of directly address what they're going to be doing here, um, how they all feel about it. They are just here and constantly training, seemingly for nothing. They never see combat in any way. (laughs) A helicopter crashes, and and that's as close as it gets. And obviously, some of them punch each other. Um, (laughs) But there is no engagement with, you know, we shouldn't be here. We are we are years past any actual conflict happening here. We are here to just reinforce French imperialism. <laughs> All of that is just for you to be like, oh yeah. It's um, it, yeah, it is entirely dressing, and I do think that like, this movie does have a lot in common with Hurt Locker, yeah. not only because obviously it's a a female director, mm-hmm. a very unique view on male physicality. Yeah doing a movie about male soldiers and i mean obviously like this is this is kind of the ultimate female gaze movie like (laughs) in so far as you can say that like the female gaze doesn't exist because it isn't an overwhelming thing that we have in society but you watch this and like you think about what men think of attractive men and they tend to be kind of like you're roided up huge muscle people and then Uh this just like we're just gonna have these guys existing they're gonna be like touching we're gonna focus on arms we're gonna focus on movement and like all these things again like well it's like uh, what we talked about in bound isn't it like yeah uh, like what what a straight person or what a straight man wouldn't think of attractive like it, yeah. it, the same thing that there's, there's a meme on tiktok at the moment that's basically like ask your straight boyfriend how attractive does he find Ryan Reynolds? If he says anything between an eight and a ten, then he's definitely one hundred percent straight. I because... think, unfortunately, that is me. Um, <laughs> because it's like it's that one hundred percent. Like Ryan Reynolds is an attractive person made for straight people. Yeah, the, the superhero physique is aimed at men, and like you, you can see it. Like I think the meme has gone around with Hugh Jackman, where you see him on the front cover of like Muscle and Fitness, and he's full Wolverine, enormous, vascular, gross, quite frankly. And then you see him on the front of a woman's magazine. He is clean-shaven in a nice jumper with his forearms <laughs> exposed. And it's like, that's the thing. People attracted to men do like arms, but they like forearms and they like hands. They don't necessarily like, giant fucking biceps, bro. <laughs> and and I, think, I think all of that boils down to there is that incel mentality with, with straight men of like attraction being like a science equation. If I tick boxes... The certain boxes, i.e. get fucking jacked and have a nice car and all of this, women will want me. Wait, yeah, why don't if, they? I am now angry at them. And it's like, that's yeah, not how if, it works. <laughs> if I have if I have the right muscles, if I have the right head of hair, yeah. if I do this kind of thing, then obviously I'm going to be attractive. And then it's like, you look at you look at people in stable relationships, and it's like, that man's got like a beer gut and like is balding. And yeah. like, these are the most deeply loved people that I've ever met in my entire life. Yeah, <laughs> and like, again, a, a Twitter meme is like, every super hot woman is going out with some guy, you know? <laughs> with just some dude. And like, I, I've just always found it hilarious that people try and boil attraction down to that stuff when nobody can fucking decide, like, if they, 
like you know there's there's certain things where like you get wild extremes about whether people like or don't like something so it's like maybe just don't sweat it and be you and maybe you know just groom yourself because it's good to look after yourself and just let it be what it is yeah um, i mean like you're probably more attracted to like less innate things or whatnot yeah. it's, I, don't, uh, I just have always but you know you like what you like and 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 we sort of talked about it in truman show where like you know they have attempted to tick all of his boxes, but life isn't about boxes, and he just happened to be taken by a, a completely different lady across the room, and then that fucked their entire script. And it's like, oh, that's, that's life. And while we have sort of wandered wildly off topic, not being able to help who you're attracted to <laughs> is a key <laughs> theme of the movie. So. It is a key theme of the movie. Like, obviously, there's so much to unpack with the, the homoeroticism in this movie, but let's just finish off some context around this movie. So obviously Claire Denis directs this. It is her most acclaimed movie. It comes out in 1999. She obviously goes on to have like a, a fairly illustrious career in terms of film circles. I think both tries are obvious pick in the 90s in terms of what you're going to discuss. But after this, she has works such as Day Five Shots of Rum, White Material, Let the Sunshine In, 2018's High Life, which of course features um, a masturbating Rob Patterson, which is his favourite. <laughs> um, ultimately at this point she is kind of like the quintessential grumpy French woman like, she's 75 years old she directed this movie when she was like in her in her mid 50s she she was born in France but then was actually raised in French Africa so she spent a lot of time in yeah. kind of like Cameroon Somaliland Senegal obviously in the run up to the, the fall of French imperialism which is obviously what this movie is all about um, I believe in 1998 or 1999, Art, the television channel in France, approaches her and says, we want you to make a movie about what it's like to feel foreign. And being someone who was raised in French Africa, immediate thought is the French Foreign Legion, which oh, yeah. <laughs> is is a fascinating kind of like dichotomy in terms of that. Like, like, how much do you know of the French Foreign Legion in terms of like the way that they're structured? In terms of the way they're structured, I I I, I don't just, really <laughs> just in, just in terms of the fact that like they are the only part of the French military which does not swear allegiance to France. They swear allegiance to the French Foreign Legion, which means that any person of any nationality who is in a battle with the France Foreign Legion or involved in the war can swear allegiance to the French Foreign Legion and become part of the French Foreign Legion. Well, you, you have the Russian guy in there. Yes, yeah. yes. Yeah. So you have the Russian guy, you have the, the, the Muslims who are obviously supposed to be kind of like African natives. Uh, I don't know, you get French Muslims. You do get French Muslims, but obviously like, it, 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 was such a, it was such a way for people to claim French citizenship. Yeah. To- well, well, like France has such a problematic history with, with you know, they're, they're French people of African descent. And I'm not saying that like most of the world doesn't have problems with people of African descent, but I think France in particular have this never-ending thing. Um, it's it's such a it's such a unique spectacle on it because obviously yeah. they've the benefit they have in comparison to say the UK is that like it's a short boat trip to get to to the to kind of French Africa and and obviously like they have. It really does feel like, like culturally, like an awful lot of very famous French people are obviously of French African descent, mm-hmm. um, especially when you're looking at kind of like French football and such. And well, yeah, I mean that's that's the big one is that like they are hideously racist towards their black players and are like they're African, and then they win the World Cup and they're like ah yeah vive la France. <laughs> and it's like okay, sure, and like the various problems with Algeria and their issues they have with with their Muslim population and yeah, it's. Yeah, we we will we will one hundred percent touch on Algeria later on in this episode when I get into some context around a certain yeah. country. I just think you know, like with with the with their like active occupation of of huge swaths of Africa, it's a very different thing to. I mean, the, the go to for for racism is America, but because they are all you know descendants of slaves and and the history of slavery and everything, but like for France, it is it is a far more you know up-to-the-minute kind of thing, where, where they have occupied Africa within our lifetime. So I think, I think that the, 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 the style of the tension is very different, and, and, and to see it spelled out, as I said, with the guy telling him you're not African anymore, you're French. And I, I you know, because you've, you've sworn allegiance to the Foreign Legion. Yeah, it's all it's yeah. all very <laughs> charged. It's, it's, it's so interesting to think, because obviously, like, we're British... But so much of the culture we consume is American, and yeah. our perspective on colonialism is very much that kind of like European style, where it's like we actually occupied these countries and ruled them, like India, China, yeah. like 
America, like like we we put our ruling system in place, which mm-hmm. is not the same as the kind of like attempted American imperialism where they're not walking into Vietnam and trying to say that the president of America is now in charge of, of Vietnam. No, they're just toppling over much of the Middle East and then, uh, you know, staying too long and then the second they leave, it all <laughs> fucking explodes. Um, yeah, it's, it's, but it's such a weird thing where it's like, in Europe, we stayed for so long. And yeah. it almost, like the American imperialism is a reaction that was like, oh, well, we're not going to, we're going to put our, our power structures in place. Yeah. We'll put power structure that's sympathetic to us and then leave and they can do whatever the fuck they want to do whilst we're gone. <laughs> yeah. We stay too long, they don't stay long enough. Or, or, or not really. I mean, no one should be staying anywhere. It's <laughs> the, uh, the, the boilerplate there is, you know, leave countries alone. Don't be weird. Yeah, that's my summary of world history and all wars. Don't be weird, man. But yeah, it, like yeah. deeply fascinating that like, this is Claire Denis' first response to this. And it, I mean, obviously she is a grumpy French woman, but it's very obvious that she is like putting thought into what France's relationship to Africa is. Even at the same time, this is like her home. Like she's lived in these parts of the world for most of her life. And you can tell that she's got great affection for it. Because this movie, like even if it is like mostly silent, is really fucking gorgeous. Like the, the mm. bright blues of the ocean and the sky yeah. and like... I mean, I, I mean, again, when I think about how gorgeous the movie is, it's like the final stretch of this movie when you have Santar like dying on the salt flats, and just the way that the, the salt flats are shot is just so gorgeous. Yeah. And as it is, like you're just aware that like this guy is just slowly dying of thirst as he likes it. <laughs> yeah, most of the movie, you're sort of. I mean, I think it's it, it's noted for its uh, its creative positioning of the camera. Shall we say? Mm. And you're seeing a lot of shots where you can just see this just never-ending gorgeous blue sky above them as they're doing all these drills. And the drills are, like, mesmerising, some of them. Like, especially, like, the assault course kind of stuff, where they're all tackling everything in a slightly different way. And, yeah, just all of that is... It's been said already by others, but, you know, it, it is balletic, and it's, and it's sort of the way it's presented um, as, as a giant choreographed rehearsal kind of thing set to the score and everything, and, and yeah, the, the yeah. beautiful landscapes and everything. I mean, that's the thing, is like they brought in a choreographer to kind of help with these scenes where like they were like trying to make it feel like this kind of thing. It's obviously all composed to Benjamin Britten's opera based on Billy Budd by Billy Herman Bird, Mel- yes. <laughs> yeah, which is obviously like what this film is adapting, so it's kind of like the three metatextual layers involved where it's it's an unfinished Herman Melville novella which is basically about a a handsome sailor who strikes and kills his master at arms and ends up having to die because of it and or at the risk of kind of like a mutiny laws and whatnot even though obviously he was kind of like provoked into striking his master yeah. off. and the cap the captain is the only witness the prosecution the defense and the judge <laughs> Uh, and he, he, while he agrees that Billy Budd acted correctly and is not guilty of any mutiny, he still killed a superior officer, and thus we must follow the letter of the law, and he must die, and they're all very, very sad about it. Yeah. Um, and then, because it's unfinished, there's a lot of contradictory information and stuff, but it's been made into, into a film where I think Terence Stamp, in his first ever movie, wins the Oscar playing Billy Budd, and, and, and there's like a version with fucking William Shatner playing Billy Budd, which I must see. Um, <laughs> I simply must. But yeah, it turns out, yeah, it turns out a slightly different way, uh, in that our Billy Budd equivalent sort of lives. <laughs> <laughs> he, he get he gets away, but obviously, like you get the hint early on, where yeah. where Blue is kind of wandering around and going like the only one who remains is Bruno Forestier in the mm-hmm. the army is like the the, the three piece triptych at the centre of this movie. Um, like most movies, is scored to an opera by yeah. uh, by Breton, and it's I don't know, it's it's interesting that like the movie is playing so heavily on this kind of like three yeah. three levels of this text that never got finished but is in some circle seen as like Herman Melville's like number two text yeah, yeah, yeah. it's so uh, yeah <laughs> it's funny that like because so many admit it's like oh it, it's like it's clearly unfinished some of it is barely intelligible because it's like handwritten that has been written over and his wife has come in and been like I didn't know what he meant by this but <laughs> here's my go um, so it's like barely in anything coherent, and yet it's also praised as this giant, as this like flawless masterpiece. Yeah, which which I think is the most fascinating thing is obviously um, there's a there is a genius in the messiness, and if you're willing mm. to like, 
the street, then you can find it. Um, yeah. And it's like, you know, obviously, <laughs> so my partner came into the room towards the end of the movie, and I sort of said, you know, it, it's based on, on, on a Herman Melville book or, or a novella. And I was like, you're an English literature student. What are most stories, <laughs> what does most of English literature boil down to? Uh, as particularly when men are concerned. And she said, being gay? I was like, bingo! <laughs> <laughs> um, and then during the uh, the final dance scene, she said, that's the gayest thing I've ever seen. <laughs> like, yeah, yeah. He's got moves, though. Uh, he does have moves. A surprising yeah. amount of moves for a man that looks so serious. <laughs> So, right, that's kind of the preamble done. We've kind of done all the context behind the making of it. We've managed to discuss so many different elements, but let's do 1999 in context. So this movie premieres in Italy at the Spanish Film Festival on 4th September 1999. It does a couple of uh, European festivals and, and uh, well, it does, it does, so it does Venice, it does Toronto, it does South Korean Film Festival, and it does a Greek film festival in 1999. And all the big ones. All the big ones, and then it premieres Sundance in 2000, um, which obviously I think is where it gets picked up and then kind of like fast tracked. So all the all the critical response to this movie you'll find are things like it wins the Village Voice Award for best movie of 2000, and it's lots of people's picks for like the best movie at uh, of 2000, even though that movie that year is a really packed year. But because we're doing this based on the actual like little little tiny like when did it first premiere? We're doing this as a 1999 movie, so let's discuss. The most acclaimed movies of 1999, of which we have already discussed Office Space and All About My Mother. Also out this year, you have Magnolia, Paul Thomas Anderson's third movie, Eyes Wide Shut, Stanley Kubrick's final movie, the horny, horny movie of all time. <laughs> With the least horny man of all time as the lead. <laughs> Number four is The Matrix, which obviously is a movie which we are not discussing, although <laughs> uh, do you want to do a cheeky plug for <laughs> The Sky Scorchers episode five? Uh... That sounds accurate, yeah. I guess I didn't talk Mike into talking about the video games. Uh, yeah, obviously, uh, The Sky Scorchers was a mini-series Mike Thomas and I did at IntoTheRealWorld.com. Yes, and now there is a new Matrix movie against all odds. So, you know, COVID being what it is in our country, we'll see if I am allowed to leave the house to go and see it and if I can even get tickets. But hopefully, by the time you hear this, it should already exist because this is coming out in the last week of December, so either go re-listen to The Sky Scorchers or listen to the brand new episode. I hope the latter. Other movies in 1999 that are critically famed, you've got Fight Club, David from David Fincher, Audition from Takashi Miike, American Beauty, the best picture winner for this year, Topsy Turvy by Mike Lee, and The Straight Story by David Lynch. I mean, obviously this is like the year that's seen as the greatest year for cinema. It feels like cheating to say Beau is like the post child to this, considering it doesn't come out in America until 2000, but it's <laughs> funny to see the greatest year for American cinema topped by a French movie that came out the next year. Yeah, well, uh, them's the breaks. I am still to this day shocked that we didn't default to Fight Club being in volume three of this podcast. Like, I know, for, for, like, for Fincher being in all in both volumes before now as well. Yeah, and like for as, as, as like corrupted as it has become by people that love it too much, it is still good. <laughs> So I am shocked we, we didn't end up with it, but I mean, hey, I, I had other battles to pick, so I, I didn't I think, push. I think both of us had a very much kind of like, let's try and not be like super obvious. I think I just assumed it would end up there, so I didn't really try and make it end up there, and then I think you did the same, or, or maybe you deliberately tried to not pick it, and then, hey, it's not there. It's not um, there. Uh, right, but speaking of the opening weekend, this yes. movie... March 31st, 2000. Where does it end up at the box office, Matthew? 71st. <laughs> as it opens in two theatres. It's by the New Yorker of all things. Uh-huh. It makes $10,000 a screen, which isn't bad, actually. It wouldn't make it number one by any means by that metric, but it is one of the higher per averages. Uh, but yes, it is all the way down at 71st, just behind Africa's Elephant Kingdom. By Discovery in its 100th week. <laughs> what a sentence. That has, that has to be like an IMAX movie that's playing in like a couple yeah, of yeah, yeah. across the country. Yeah. Up on the, the other end of the spectrum, Aaron Brockovich is number one, reigning supreme still in its third week. The Road to El Dorado, The Skulls, Romeo Must Die, shout out. High Fidelity, American Beauty, Final Destination, Mission to Mars, Here on Earth, and Whatever It Takes is your top ten. Again. Movies used to be more interesting. Or diverse, let's put it that way. 
<laughs> but yeah, Butcher Rye all the way down at 71st. You know. How do you sell this movie? Like, what does a trailer for this movie look like and how on earth do you get people to come and see this? I have to imagine the only people who are coming to see this are, like, the people who are, like, really fucking plugged into European mm. cinema and, like, festival circuits. Yeah, I mean, I think you just, you festival it a lot, you, you solicit reviews and then you hope for a, you know, Oscar campaign. Sometimes. Well, I guess thing is because th- this movie makes $270,000 in the US box office. It never plays more than four cinemas. Mm-hmm. Like four is its four is its maximum. It never reaches a bigger per theater average than this first weekend. Mm. Uh, obviously, it makes about three hundred thousand in France, but like, obviously, it's on the Criterion Collection now. I don't, I'm not not going to say this is like one of the best selling movies that have come out since then because I think it was like notoriously hard to get a hold of in some circles. But <laughs> some Criterion is an awful lot easier. Um, but yeah, just weird that it's obviously stuck in enough people's crawl that it's like like now acclaimed as being uh what was it the bbc put it as like number the number eight movie of the 2000s or something yeah i mean it's, it's one that you bump up against if you are like a bit of a film nerd um even if you haven't necessarily seen it because it it is hard to see um <laughs> i had to exhaust a lot of options to find it yeah but Sorry, number, rank number 43 for non-English-speaking film in a critics' poll conducted by the BBC in 2018. Oh, 43 is a lot lower than 8. It is a lot lower than 8, but, 40, <laughs> but 43 of all time as opposed to 8 of the 2000s. That's fair, that's fair. Yeah, and, and you know, I mean, just to, to loop back around a bit on it, like, less being my thing. Obviously, there's... there's I'm not saying I don't enjoy foreign cinema because like, that's a that's an incredibly close-minded thing to say uh obviously I, I i i don't go out of my way to watch it as much as you do but like we have covered some foreign movies uh thanks to you on the podcast and i look at something like handmaiden which like really really grabbed me and and think to myself and and you know i would say to a lesser extent parasite i don't know if i said that at the time that i prefer handmaiden to parasite but if not i'm saying it now those are very those have like plots, you know, <laughs> like like uh, there there is always, you know, I'm not anti vibes. I just prefer it when the vibes are accompanying a more intricate story. Uh, yeah, I, I think I think that's fair, and I think that's the main issue you have. Yeah. With, like, there is enough pulpy, plotty cinema that exists in the foreign world that you can like really get your teeth into, but yeah. because most people who are watching foreign cinema tend to be film critics who have a particular kind of like sensibility, you end up with this kind of like weird thing where you end up with a lot of just vibes movies on top. And then every so often you get like a genre breakthrough where like a, a more plotty dense movie, like obviously like Park Chan-wook and Bong Joon-ho are like two classic examples of like, they're coming from South Korean revenge cinema and making kind of like more plotty intricate things and obviously get massive, massive acclaim from doing that. Mm. And then the, side of it you have Claire Denis who is very obviously a student of French New Wave yes and, and we covered some of this and all about my mother that like you know the French New Wave and, and the stereotype of French cinema is like nothing happens and it's just like yeah it's it's it's, it's all vibes and, and Denis is clearly like <laughs> an acolyte of that school of thought so yeah, yeah I, I, I can appreciate it as being a very beautifully shot film and everything and and if you put it in front of me and it's like you must watch this as basically has happened here, <laughs> I didn't not enjoy it. But it's like this is never something I would seek out and and you know champion as as it were. Um, in the same way that like you know I worked for film festivals and like you know I and and I reviewed stuff for film festivals and stuff and like you know the, in that world you know you're encountering a lot of movies you've never heard of that are outside of your wheelhouse and like I ended up enjoying several that I just I would never have seen if not for that so I do think it is important to like push outside of your comfort zone and I'm glad I've seen it but yeah it's still it hasn't like converted me I'm not seeking more all vibes uh, yeah. movies <laughs> my, my favourite move of the year is is Islusciama's Peki Mama which is basically like I wouldn't say it's a pure vibes movie but it's very much like a pure emotions movie mm-hmm. which is basically just what if a small girl got to meet their mother as a little girl and they hung out and had fun times together mm. and but that movie brought me to my core but also like we went to see it as like a um a screen unseen thing where people were like going in going oh my god what if this Ghostbusters what if this 
And then the movie opens up and there's a little girl finding out that her grandmother's died and like driving through the French countryside and like 15 people walked out of the cinema. And it's like, <laughs> like, like the ultimate example of like what happens when you put quote unquote normies into a situation where they yeah. have to engage with, with foreign cinema. Yeah, they, they did at, at the Cambridge Film Festival, they, they do the, the surprise film um, and it's a big tradition every year. And there are accounts of like once it became clear what it was, people just walked out and stuff. And like it, it's they it sells out every single year. Um, people, you know, the entire screen is packed, and like that people are willing to pay, knowing it could be absolutely anything. It's crazy. Um, when I was there, it was up, which I had not even heard of, and I was like, oh, okay. And then I'm like, oh, I'm crying. Ten minutes in, this is fun. <laughs> It's just, it is always funny okay. when like you give people a complete unknown and like they're, they're willing to come out in droves to, to get the tickets and then surprise, fuckers. Obviously, it's interesting because obviously I, the, 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 the famous one from the London Film Festival is Damsels in Distress, which is like early Greta Gerwig, Whit Stillman movie, and like is notorious in the London Film Festival circuit for being like people fucking hated it. <laughs> where, like, when Ladybird premiered at the London Film Festival as the surprise film, people walked out. Just because. because how, how yeah. How much hate they had for Greta Gerwig from Damsels in Distress. And obviously, Ladybird has become, like, I think, like, the one of the most, like, precious growers of 2017. I think only Phantom Thread has kind of, like, topped it for that year. But, like, it's wild to think that there's, like, a contingent of film fans in London who are, like, fuck Greta Gerwig. The mm. fucking worse. <laughs> um, Jeez. <laughs> Oh, so both by let's let's start with so like obviously the three main actors you've got Gregoire Collin who is a actual kind of stalwart of Claire Denis movies he's in her movies before and after this who plays Santa who is kind of the the most important of the three but like the least screen presence really of any he doesn't have a character like he's just a good looking man who who very briefly stands up for injustice but throughout it's just he is watched and he is <laughs> What's the term? Resented. Uh, yeah, and I mean, I mean is, so so he he obviously rankles glue in like all the worst ways, and obviously the subtext is supposed to mean that that Santan is basically this affable person who everyone likes, and you watch it like again, it's all very subtextual, but like you've got the scene where after they've gone out dancing, and like he is the second person they like raise upon their shoulders, and it's supposed to be like he's this charismatic guy that everyone looks up to mm -hmm. and is a completely different ideal of what a French legionnaire soldier should be because he's like a lot thinner and a lot kind of like less masculine and the subtext is Galou is like completely torn asunder by this this yeah. change in what a French, French legionnaire should be and obviously the subtext again is fuck, he, he's actually in love with this person yeah. but because he's destroying the French legionnaire ideal in his mind, he also resents him so completely that he wants to to break this person down into like the, his fundamental parts. Essentially, like I want to break this person and yeah. cause him to to leave the French legionnaires is his point of view. And ultimately, yeah. this quest leads him to his dishonorable discharge and potential execution. <sighs> wow. Not execution, but self-execution potentially. Um, I, I think. I think the. I think the implication. I think you still do get court-martialed, and you can be sentenced to death. Yeah, actually, because it seems like he's just living a nice, well, not a nice, but a normal life, writing his memoirs about the incident, and then once he's done, he is planning to kill himself potentially. But yeah, I, um, I mean, I think obviously, obviously, the implication is that like his life is over, whether or not that is by his. Yeah, own. it's it's all he had. He he is what we were talking about earlier. That like he has very rigid definitions of of masculinity and if you are this then you are that uh, and, and you know there, there are there are the sort of scenes with his 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 local girlfriend and everything who seems to not really give a shit about him at all and is almost pleased he's fucking off and like he is not loved by by the crew uh he is like the perfect legionnaire and yet they don't like him and they they like this sort of more wafy effeminate guy i mean he's you know he's still <laughs> so very like muscular dude and everything but yeah like he's challenging all of his ideas and he's popular and, and he's not and then even his superior officer uh forestier is kind of like yeah i don't really give a shit like he, he's just gotten promoted almost like in spite of his lack of ambition and he is a little bit you know he seems like he's a little bit more out of shape and everything and he's just like ah you know carefree and the men like him, and they don't like Galoo. And, and he sort of 
slightly resents both his superior officer and particularly Saint-Tien. Uh, and but you know the reason that one is more extreme is because also he clearly is closeted and wants to fuck him so like he's being challenged from every angle about everything he thinks about the world all he has is is the military it defines him and it's taken away and you know he's he's yeah. lost everything the most interesting thing is like both of them go through the movie and they really don't show much on their faces about what they're thinking like satan is like such a blanked face person and there's that scene where they're like circling each other yeah <laughs> and like you don't know like it feels like the movie's building its climax at that point and like there's going to be some like knockdown drag out fight someone's going to hit rock or tumble over a cliff edge or something something extreme is going to happen it's like yeah. no they just circle each other and who even knows what happened and they, <laughs> yeah and like they just like, stare at each other and you don't get any feeling of emotion and stuff like that I think the closest you get to a actual like physical expression of disgust is when they're doing the mining essentially and they're working through the day during Ramadan and there's mm-hmm. three the three Muslim legionnaires who cannot eat during daytime mm-hmm. so uh, Sentan kind of like starts shouting it about them saying like hey you Muslims like mm. and kind of like taking the piss out of them there's a little bit of teasing like oh this food is so good and, and you know and like it's not <laughs> I mean it's fictional so like it feels silly to even say but you know we're not there we don't know the full context like is it just an actual genuine ingest playful thing and they're cool with it or is he like straight up being like xenophobic and <laughs> I, I have to. I have to like, imagine like doing this job during Ramadan, like to, having to actually do a hard working job where like yeah. you are working in the baking sunlight. And you cannot have food until until it gets to sunset. Like it must be like I know what I get when I don't eat regularly. Yeah, and I, yeah. I would be like immediately on the end of my leash, just going, "I'm gonna fucking like crack your skull open." Yeah, yeah, and like <laughs> yeah, and and like there are there are basketball players who who. Who, who observe and like they they can't eat and it's like you're trying to play like a professional sport against the world's greatest athletes with with no food in you like you know who I think you know who Kareem Abdul-Jabbar is yes. right yeah he famously is probably the most prominent but and um there's Akeem Olajuwon uh as another one but yeah and, and like there was a player recently and it's like the the sun is gonna set during the game or something so like they immediately get him a sandwich or whatever and it's like this is not ideal no matter how you slice it kind of thing <laughs> so yeah being out in that african sun um and and having to dig holes and, and do all this hard labor i don't know how people do it like it's it's a testament to the human spirit i guess uh, and then yeah we've mentioned him like bruno forestier michael subor is like the the third of this triptych who when i first watched this movie i thought like when when there's the reference like he's been dogged by rumours his entire career and I thought like okay are they going for like a weird kind of like love triangle kind of thing like are they all really wanting to fuck each other but I do think it is kind of ultimately more um, Bilou is in love with Santan and Forestier is just kind of like this enigma and obviously I think the thing that unlocked it for me was hearing that Michael Subor played this exact character's name in Le Petit Soldat which is Jean-Luc Godard's second feature mm. uh, which is a movie about the Algerian war and the, and the genocide and actually like, had uh, images of kind of like torture scenes against Algerian natives in the movie. And so the implication is that like, I think Claire Denis is making this movie as a sequel to Le Petit Soldat where like after the end of that movie, this person has been bogged by the rumors of Algerian torture and eventually ends up in the French Legionnaires who are a more accepting soldier group where you can join even if you've had this kind of like controversy behind you. It, it like it makes it so much like again the the French New Wave ideas where Denis is making a sequel to a Jean-Luc Godard French Wave movie <laughs> that was banned in France for years before it ultimately got released because of like all the controversy around yeah. uh, around Algeria at the time. But, like just a weird again another kind of like metatextual wrinkle to this of like again like you've got the novel you've got the Jean-Luc Godard. And uh, yeah, it's just it, it's very obviously a movie that is interested in taking like using subtext to propel its plot more so than the actual like actions of characters in the movie. Where you have Denny Lebon, who is a fascinating physical presence and is really the only character in this movie who speaks. Even when you have Dubois and him having conversations, 
Denis Lebon is doing the, the speech from his like memoirs. In yeah, the he's, he's narrating. He is often the only person talking in in those flashbacks, like, or you know, however you want to phrase it. Yeah, he, he he is he is wearing all of the hats. <laughs> he is our protagonist, our antagonist, our narrator, our, our dance entertainment at the end. Uh, <laughs> yeah. I mean, I mean, yeah, just a, he is a fascinating discoverer. So I've got a lot of time for Denny Lebon. I, I was actually going through my letterbox and seeing like who are my highest rated actors for the year, and my highest rated actors for 2021 are Denny Lebon for this movie and for Holy Motors, which he did with. Uh, Leo Carax, who is another kind of like big French auteur who he did like three movies with Paul, this playing the same character. And obviously Holy Motors, he plays a green velvet clad goblin man who like steals Eva Mendes away. And it's, <laughs> it's, it's a fucking wild movie. But like, yeah, like obviously you hire... Shots fired at Willem Dafoe. There. <laughs> Got your green goblin right here. <laughs> but yeah, like he's just a, a, an incredible physical presence where like he can do yeah. whatever you need him to do and I, I would recommend watching Holy Motors just for how wild it is and watching a performance that is so ultimately like performative he's also in the 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 did you ever watch the the music video for Rabbit in Your Headlights he's, he's in that as well and then just he's just again like a really fascinating presence who like most of this movie is kind of doing these very restrained things and you get to like the, the scenes of the movement he is still like such a Force at the center of them. Well, the one that sticks out is when he's critiquing their push-up drills, and he's doing like you know he he's making the pace much faster, and then he does it himself, and he's like jumping up and and like you know half down, up, half down, up, down, all the way, all the way up, all the way down, half up, half down, half up, half down. And it's like Jesus Christ! <laughs> and it's like yeah, yeah, you're you're an in shape person clearly, um, and like demonstrating the wall and and all of that stuff so like, I, I think it is important to it that he is like a you know an exceptional soldier or everything because you know his idea his ideas about what that means are obviously core to the entire thing and and, and i do find it interesting that uh forestier is just kind of you're more laid back like yeah i don't really care one way or the other but here i am in command so carry on everyone and that then sort of almost gives galoo even more authority that he because he's he's having to be the one that pushes all of this stuff for the most part. It's just all these like scenes of of them set because they obviously are moving around a lot and them having to sort of set up a temporary sort of camp and and like him setting the table for this birthday celebration and everything and it's all meticulous and they're all like either shirtless or in just a t-shirt and no trousers and and just sort of yeah, it's all very fascinating seeing them all like closely bonded together and we know none of their names um uh, except for sometimes like literally yeah. most of them are just credited as legionnaire like, okay. well yeah there's there's <laughs> just that big block where obviously the movie the movie ends and it's like the three names come up and then it just fills out as like a cube of like all the other names in the movie and most <laughs> of them are like yeah, as you say like just legionnaire when they're in this movie but yeah i mean unnamed girlfriend <laughs> unnamed girlfriend i mean it's it's interesting because you have the reason why Galoo kind of takes them away mm. is to take Satan away from Forestier. And, like, obviously, it feels like that. Again, if you're reading this movie as, like, he's almost like a jealous lover and, mm. like, he, he wants to remove this guy from under the eyes of Forestier, even though Forestier doesn't seem all that interested. But, like, there is that scene where after the, the helicopter crash and Satan manages to rescue one of the pilots or one of the other people on the plane mm. and he gets, like, pulled aside and praised... And it's like that's the worst thing that could have happened. It's like immediately it, again, it yeah. like breaks this idea of what a, a legionnaire is. It's like why is this skinny ass boy getting like praised for mm. surviving? That's yeah. what he should do. My surrogate father likes my lusted <laughs> uh, after twink boy more than me. Yeah. <laughs> like, really, such yeah. a weird energy, and obviously this all culminates in what I do find interesting is it isn't. Yes, Galoo has got machinations that are going to kind of like... He explicitly plans it out. Like, he, he says, I'm, I'm going to destroy you. I mean, I guess he doesn't plan it to happen exactly like it happens. Yeah, that's the thing. Is like he is he punishes one of the legionnaires who leaves their post. To, to, to take a piss, because... And obviously, yeah, obviously Satan says, like, I mean, don't doesn't he go out? He goes out to meet someone. Possibly, yeah. Because that's cut around it, and like, obviously, I think I think the movie obviously is ambiguous whether or not he's gone out to meet someone or whether or not he has actually gone to take a take a leak. But Santana and, covers for him a bit. 
And this guy is then made to dig holes just for the sake of it until his hands bleed and, and he is denied any any help whatsoever and Santin gives him water at which Gallo immediately kicks out of his hand, slaps him in the face and then he punches him. And like the way that is filmed is very strange. Like, it's like, is this the world's worst pun? Oh, it's slow motion. <laughs> and it, it, but it's so interesting because obviously like, but this is where I think the wrinkle of this all being Galou's memoirs mm. kind of comes in where it's like, is this actually how it happened? Or is yeah. this romanticizing this moment? And you're like, it was this great epic punch. And like, <laughs> in reality, it was just kind of like going like, what on earth are you doing if this man dies it's under your watch kind of thing? Like, yeah. you only get Galou's point of view and he kind of is impossibly able to see himself as like, yeah. even, even with this kind of like sanitized version where he's trying to paint himself as like, trying to teach these boys something, he still cannot come across without being the aggressor and without being the... Yeah. And this is where, like, you know, anything remotely military just, like, completely turns me off and I, I just am sort of disgusted by it. And, and, like, and it's, you know, this whole thing of, like, it doesn't matter that none of this is real. We must adhere strictly to the rules at all times and, and, and empathy must go out the window and everything. It's like, yeah, I don't care. This guy can die of thirst on my watch, but at least we all followed the rule book, and it's like, you know, um, and, and, and sent out just trying to be like, all right, dude, calm the fuck down, <laughs> and is immediately punished for it. In, in like, a really fucked up way, because obviously it's supposed to be glue drops sent out off in the middle of nowhere, and it's like, walk back to camp, you don't have water, see you when you get here. But he but, sabotaged his compass. So sent just gets lost in the salt flats and ends up kind of, I mean, again, I mentioned the scene earlier where he's, like, lying there and, like, the, the bit where he, like, drags his coat to give him shade. Yeah, his, like, completely chapped lips and he's, like, just covering his head while the rest of him is just melting. Yeah, but, like, the coat is just so solid, mm. just encoated, uh, encoated in, in salt at this point. And yeah. it's just, again, such a good shot. And then, luckily, he's found by a, a walking troop of sellers. Yeah, yeah. Walking through, walking through the salt flats. But this isn't before another legionnaire manages to find the corrupted compass at a stall, essentially. Covered in salt, and then, yeah, he, he's immediately... I like the casualness with which Forestier, like, you know, tells him, yeah, you're going to be court-martialed. Sorry, dude. It, it's so... And that Galou is just standing there taking it because, you know, of course he does. He can never be emotional. While this guy, just as casually as you like, is like, oh, yeah, dude, you killed a guy. You're, <laughs> you're going to get court-martialed, sorry, bye. You're never going to be a soldier again. Devastating to him. But, you know, this was his... I don't know what he thought was going to happen, that they would just assume that he just got lost and it's on him for being a bad soldier, just as he always said he was, kind of thing. But it's like, yeah, I mean... <laughs> but, but to plan out ahead, because, I mean, he may not have planned for the circumstances to come about as they did, but he clearly had the punishment in mind of like, I'll take him out somewhere. Because he says the compass kind of thing. I will destroy you, the compass kind of thing. Yeah. Um, so he, you know, he fully intended that. And like to leave him in such an extremely inhospitable part of the world, you know, it's, it's, it's fucked, man. Like it, that, that is like the true definition of psychopathy. Like that, that kind of machination and the deliberate not caring and the deceit and the manipulation and everything. I mean, it's, I think it's the fact that he doesn't even, like, make an attempt. Like, if he was just trying to punish this person and to break them down and make them quit, then he would organise a search by his Yeah, like, it's like, oh, shit, okay. I, I thought he'd have made it back by now, even without the compass. Hmm. But no, the he, the, the he, he wanted assume, to kill him, basically. Okay, the fact that they he just deserted and would have left yeah. into another part of Africa is the, in, like, the, the weird part is that they don't send out the, yeah. the search party. Yeah, and then... Obviously, you've got like the, the the wraparound story of him being in Marseille or Paris or, or wherever in France he's ended up and doing like all these like needlessly redundant tasks where he's like, oh, I need to keep my body in shape. It's so rusty. And he's like climbing trees and hacking at twigs that are hanging from the branches, not really doing anything effective. Yes, the whole, um, you know, <laughs> I can't make it on the outside kind of thing. <laughs> like he, he, yeah. is, he has nothing. He, you know, we see him interacting with zero people. He's making his bed in a military fashion, you know, all of that. Um, yeah, and then lies on it with the gun. And, and, we, and for the final, or not the final shot, but the final part of that, to be just lingering on his twitching muscle, which I guess they're going for, like, he's anticipating that he's going to pull the trigger, so his arm is, like, you know, getting ready to 
whatever but yeah i mean it's that it's like this kind of like repression that he feels Mm. and like he's kind of like bottling all these like emotions up and stuff like that and then obviously it then cuts to what i do we think is one of the greatest final scenes in cinema it's amazing it is amazing and you know we've seen the first shot of the well uh second shot of the movie is this nightclub and and we go to it a few times and it's like just women trying to have a nice time and the soldiers all just come and like ah, ah, kind of thing. <laughs> and, and he does have a girlfriend who he probably met in one of these and as I said like when it's when he has to leave she's almost like happy um, and is yeah, like, like talking what, to like, a friend about it one of the documentaries I, I watched was basically like she is she is basically like a, a mirage a smoke mirror to kind of like distract you from the, the burgeoning homoeroticism homosexuality at the centre of this movie like there's no physical touch between him and her the closest he gets is when he buys her the little kind of like box of I don't even know what's inside the box yeah he... perfume maybe I don't know yeah but yeah, and like you know wakes her up to, to take it's like you know he's keeping up appearances he's probably like trying to flex his like authority and he's like oh yeah, yeah. you're impressed by this aren't you and she's like oh dude like I, I guess like yeah, go away this is, this is what I'm supposed to do yeah 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 um, and, and, and like you know we as I said like you know we've seen this club throughout and like a lot of them are like cracking onto the locals and are, and are like striking out but like it seems like some of them are vaguely getting some attention so then to like end it with him all by himself uh, and I have to assume there must be a re-edit cut to um, Dancing on My Own. <laughs> but unfortunately, a song that had not been released at the time, so instead it's Rhythm of the Night, as he just... It's it's incredible how sedate he goes to just full-on doing, like, the sort of jump and make your body go, like, completely parallel to the ground, land, spin, like, and he's just rolling around on the floor for a bit, and it's like, you have committed to this harder than I think I've seen many actors commit to anything. <laughs> Yeah, it's um, it's so good. It's this kind of like obviously the implication is like this is his last time being in the French Legionnaire. He's leaving in the morning to go back to to back to France, mm. and so it's like almost him dancing to death. Like he yes. is is like expunging all of his demons and is just like it's it's a completely mesmerizing, mm. melancholy physical performance. Yeah. That uh, yeah, just just it's, it just doesn't. I I can't even communicate it but like, I was gonna say it doesn't fit his character at all and yet it so entirely does from the perspective of it being so energetic and like almost silly when he is the most serious man in the world but then like you think about the intensity with which he ta- tackles the drills of course he dances intensely and like to be completely by himself because no one fucking likes him and of course I mean I would assume the soldiers aren't there because like dude, you killed that guy we like. <laughs> You're lucky we're not murdering you. And none of the locals want anything to do with him because he's out of uniform and everything. It's like, oh, you have no authority here anymore. Fuck off. And he's just this sad little man just hurling himself into this extra routine. Yeah, it's, it is mesmerising, <laughs> as is much of the film. Like, I can sit there and be like, oh, yeah, I'm not really into vibes, but, like, or that's sort of what I was getting at earlier. Like, I don't want to misconvey i think i often come across as a dullard basically <laughs> but i'm just saying that like no no i mean yeah. this, this is the thing this movie is there's not much to latch onto unless you're latching onto the imagery and the imagery is undeniably compelling like the lowest score i've got on letterboxd is like a seven out of ten i can 100 see someone going like i couldn't connect to anything in this movie but god is it compelling to watch the physicality of it all yeah absolutely but yeah i mean it, it's just there's so many levels to it, even if they're not very explicit in the text. Like the way that the movie treats female characters that we've kind of like been touching on, where there's only two female characters who really have multiple appearances. And one of them is the woman who's like selling a rug, which seems a complete random in the middle of the movie. And then she's ultimately the person that that helps Santan near the end. Like again, it's, but again, if this is a movie from a female perspective, ultimately behind the director chair, telling a story about like, the I don't even want to call it toxic that toxic masculinity because it isn't that really. It's it's just this is how men are. Like we're not gonna put labels like it's toxic. We're just gonna basically say like this is an innate thing to men. And when you put men in the same place, there's this weird, unbridled kind of like physicality to it all. Yeah. There's all this testosterone and like no relief especially as they're like not seeing combat and it's like you know it's good that they're not seeing combat obviously but like 
there's no release. Like, they're doing their drills and everything. I'm sure they are physically exhausted. and But, like, there's not many women around for them to, to, <laughs> to go and try and fuck. There's no combat. They are completely discouraged and probably incapable of expressing their, like, innermost thoughts to each other. So it's just... It's pure physicality with no ultimate, like, release and no, like, emotional relief, I guess. I don't know. Like, there's this... Yeah. So, of course, there's, there's always a powder keg. There's always, like, some explosion of, of violence out of nowhere or, you know, the latent homosexuality and, and, and stuff like that. Yeah. Always, always interesting. Always goes exactly how you expect it will. Um, there's yes. never just, there's never just a good efficient little unit with no problems that just move on and are all completely mentally healthy. I think the one thing I'm really disappointed by is that we literally cannot end this episode with Rhythm of the Night. Um... <laughs> I, I don't think I've ever said this out loud on the podcast, <laughs> but huge thank you to Goldblum, uh, who, uh, my friends, <laughs> for our intro and outro music. Yeah. So thanks. I, I do have official legal permission from them uh, to, to use it all. So, yeah, go check out their band camp. Uh, I do link them in every episode, but I don't think I've ever actually said it out loud. Maybe in the very first one, but, uh, yeah. But, yeah, that is Otrai, our season finale for, mm. for Volume 3. Do you have your top ten movies that we've covered oh. to hand? <sighs> to hand? No. To okay, hand. Whilst, whilst you're getting that, I'm going to run down my top ten. So, I mean, bearing in mind, I think I've got 12... Not 12. Uh, I've got 17 of the 25 movies we've covered as like a 9 or a 10 or better in, in this thing. So like the top 10 is like the creme de la creme of the ones that I really fucking like. So number 10, Bound. Just fucking incredible. Love Wachowski so much. Number 9, Jurassic Park. Number 8, Groundhog Day. Number 7, Silence of the Lambs. Number 6, Bowtrapai. Number 5, Chunky Express. Number 4, everyone's favourite, Abe. Number three, Goodfellas. Number two, Heat. Number one, Fargo. Um, it's been a really good, really fucking good, diverse volume. Movies. Mm. The fact that I've got like two wanky foreign movies in this in this top ten, a perennial family favorite, or two perennial family favorites, like erotic lesbian movies, massively problematic but kind of perfect movies about serial killers. Like it's. <laughs> And again, and the movie that we both kind of said, like, this is a perfect movie in Heat. Like, yeah. there's, it's a wildly diverse <laughs> list that really fucking rules yeah. overall. Yeah. I mean, mine looks tremendously different to yours. <laughs> <laughs> and the one I struggled with the most, because I, I fiddle with this throughout, and we'll, I think we'll post our full letterbox lists with the post, but I've been sort of doing it quietly in the background every time we watch something. No movie has moved on my list more than Empire Records, which bounces all over the place because I'm like, right, objectively, obviously it's not as good as most of these movies. However, I love it. And should I betray what I feel just to try and align with objectivism? So it's landed at number 10. Okay. Scream number nine, Truman Show number eight, Boogie Nights, Fargo, Point Break, Jurassic Park, Silence of the Lambs, Heat. We both had it at number two, but both said it's perfect. And then I can't. Good Will Hunting, you know, it's, it's my first yeah, yeah. favourite movie, I can't go against that, even if Heat is obviously a better movie than Good Will Hunting, but, yeah. Science so, yeah, the Lambs, Heat, Jurassic Park, Fargo, Point Break, I, I think, just all just like, fuck, these are good, you know? <laughs> like, yeah, I've got, I've even got Point Break, sure. which, like, for a long time, I'm like, I ironically think Point Break rules, even though it's so stupid, and then we, we you know, we sit down and, and talk about it, it's like, God, it just gets so much right, doesn't it? <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I've got Truman Show, Scream, and Point Break all in my, like, 15. Like, yeah. and again, like, when I was saying 17 of these are 9 or nine or 10 or higher. Like, it's yeah. it's a compliment that, what? like, they're... I, almost unfair, but what do you have in last place? Empire Records is my last place. <laughs> it's, it's just a fraction too messy for, okay. like, my taste. But then again, I, I say this, and it's like, it's a movie that I could watch over and over again. Like, mm. it's that kind of, like... I have it as six purely because of messiness, but that in terms is, of... That, that is my appeal, though. That is the appeal to me, is that I can just watch it over and over again, and I have just watched it over and over again, so it is that sentimentality. Um, I have Death Becomes there in last place. Yeah, no, fair enough. Death Becomes there was very much like, hey, I probably should have put more of a contact, but then I was also looking like, we don't have a 1992 movie. <laughs> it comes where it's just like a good, fun time. Yeah. That's... But like, if you compare that to Volumes 1 and 2... I think there are like I I hated Florida Project like actively detested it, whereas like Death Becomes Her I'm like this is still fun and good and I recommend everyone see it. 
Um, so, and like, I think we've been saying throughout, like, an infinitely more enjoyable volume, both to cover and just to sit down and watch the movies. Um, like, yeah, by yeah, far my I think, I think the issue the issue that has become in this kind of like, and, and it becomes incredibly clear after having done the 2000s and 2010s, is that the good movies of the 2000s and the 2010s are kind of all very much of a very similar build in terms of like what their aspirations are, what their critical vibes are and stuff like that. And what you're missing is the thing that we can plot onto this list is that mid-budget or turd-driven yeah. movie, like like a Heat or a Jurassic Park. Whereas yeah. nowadays, it's like, if we want to do something like that, you kind of go and like, God, do we really want to put Men in Black International on the list? <laughs> Like, like that's the thing is like there is no one is making big franchise temple movies that come out in the summer that are actively good and when they are they tend to be kind of like the 17th movie in a franchise yeah. and it's like we we really did say we're not doing marvel we're, we're not doing dc and you kind of are cutting yourself the legs it's like those are the only ones that every so often will come out with a great movie that yeah, you could yeah. put intention with, with these things yeah, like heat just does not happen today. There will never be another Die Hard. Like that, just just an you know, here's just a brand new action movie with no context. Here it is, boom, and it's fucking the greatest thing. It's it's sad, but it's nice uh, that we got to do it for the nineties. And then obviously, you know, we've we've long discussed how far back in time do we take this. Because I think the further back we go, the harder it is to cultivate a list. 70s is our absolute cutoff, but I think we both decided we're going to stop with 89, finish with the... I with think the... 100 is a good number to, to stop at, personally. And that would be Volume 4, the 1980s, tentatively coming next summer. Yeah. And then, uh, you know, if, if, we, if we find we have a gaping hole in our lives, maybe we do go 70s, but like... As much as I enjoy doing this, like I think it is nice to think of it being over at some point. <laughs> yeah, that's the thing is, it, it's fun to do, but it's definitely not. It's a lot of time. It, yeah, <laughs> it, it is. Twenty five straight weeks of of this. Uh, Twenty five queer weeks. Yeah, it, it's a lot of time. It's a lot of editing. It's a lot of hosting. It's a lot of note taking. It's a lot of making the list is hard enough. Like right up to the wire, we're making those damn things. <laughs> a lot of spreadsheets. And a lot of uh, box office numbers and research and all of that. Yeah. Poor, poor that's... us, poor us, making this podcast we willingly make for no. Yeah. <laughs> is this is this the first time that we haven't like dropped an episode at the last minute and put something else in its place? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think, I think we were like right up to the deadline of, of volume one and volume two. We were like, oh, we're going to do something else instead of this, and we'd like yeah, drop it. The Hurt Locker made it on. I lock made it on instead of Zombieland, and I can't remember what the volume two cut was, but I'm pretty sure there was something that was like. There was also. We, so Zombieland came off, and then we put on History of Violence, and then at the last minute, I was like, no, we need to do Herlock, and we need to cover a female director. Yeah, but then there was also. Oh, Raw Tannenbaums? Or... Yeah, Raw Tannenbaums, I think, was a, a, a late edition as well. Yes, it was a late edition. It was like literally, I think we recorded it like. Those are both volume one. I don't know what happened with volume two. I, something though, yeah. But yeah, we locked the list in and, and stuck to it this time. But it did go through a lot of change in the months leading up to it. I mean, we um, had a draft after we finished volume two, and then we yeah. kind of like settled down in like May and we're like, right, we actually probably should hash this out and see yeah. where. The version so- that had like The Iron Giant and Men in Black and probably Fight Club and, and all of this stuff. And I think you've pushed very hard to make The Matrix the one exception to your own rules and the matrix was going to be on here but then i said i think i said if the matrix is going to be the one exception it has to be the last movie we cover it has to be <laughs> the final episode it cannot be any other which would have been great in the synergy in terms of matrix resurrection i know I, and <laughs> all right let's go back around here we go <laughs> so 26 coming out early pick 20. an episode that hasn't released yet to delete and then uh <laughs> Here comes the metric. Oh, this is it. I, I, well, generally, don't know if we're going to be covering anything in the next six months. Ah, probably something. But... Have an idea. We'll probably throw something together, but it definitely won't be twenty-six weeks of podcasting. It will be something more akin to Secret Agent Men. Yeah. Oh God, what a stupid fucking podcast. <laughs> <laughs> Kicky punchy men. Even worse. Kicky punchy men. Which, by the way, I have not seen Bond. So. I oh, guess yeah, at some we point we should circle around to that at some point. We'll do it as together with Keep Punch Men when John Wick falls out. Okay, yeah. Yeah. Uh yeah, so I guess those two things may happen in the next six months. Um, oh and Mission Impossible. And a Mission Impossible. Yeah. 
we'll we'll do we'll do a wrap up of those three miniseries. We'll do Mission Impossible. We'll do John Wick Four, and we'll do Bond. Okay, and you know, Marvelous Journey may never come back. Obviously, it got far more complicated when they announced they doubled the number of projects they'd announced, and <laughs> TV is a much bigger time commitment than a movie. I, I don't know if I have the strength to ever watch Falcon and the Winter Soldier again. I hear you. Um, <laughs> plus, all of my thoughts on all of those shows are just readily available on the site, and I would just be repeating them. So, maybe the TV shows never get covered and we just do the movies, or maybe we do a like lightning round of what can you remember about the shows all in one go. I don't know. I mean, um, it, it more becomes a question of, like, if the movies and the TV shows ever cross over in a meaningful way, it kind of ties our hands to Spoilers, happen. they will not. <laughs> Until Disney Plus is available in China. Because, I mean, they literally announced Sam Wilson will have to earn the name Captain America in Captain America 4, which was the entire plot of the fucking show. Anyway, that's the stuff that we explicitly try not to talk about in this very serious big boy podcast. That will be back next summer. Yeah, so this was Motrabai. Mm-hmm. This was also There Will Be Movies Volume 3. And mm-hmm. so, as always, Matt, will there be movies? Oui, mais vous allez avoir besoin de le surveiller tout seul. I mean, yeah, but you'll have to watch them by yourself. Bye, everyone. Bye. <laughs> Bye. <laughs>